Let's take our Bibles tonight and turn to the book of James again, the first chapter. This morning we said, as we look ahead at the new year, we can expect two things. First, there will be trials that will be called on to endure. And also, there will be temptations to sin that we'll be called on to avoid. And so tonight, we'll be looking at those kinds of temptations. This morning, God's grace is sufficient for every trial. In verses 2 through 12, and now verses 13 through 16, God's faithfulness is sufficient for every temptation. I'd like to remind you of another verse that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. It's a great verse to have in your Bible when you're battling a specific temptation in your own life. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. On the first 12 verses of James, we saw how trials can accomplish three things in our lives. Trials make you grow. Trials cause you to pray. They drive you to your knees. And trials help you look at life correctly. The next four verses in James talk about the trials of a different nature. These are temptations to do evil or temptations to sin. While trials can accomplish good in our lives, nothing good ever comes from yielding to temptation to sin. Dr. Bob Jones Sr. used to say, It's never right to do wrong to get a chance to do right. And you stop and think about that, and you realize how true that is. You can't yield to temptation to sin and think that's ever going to help you. It's never the right road. Sin always destroys. It can damage and hurt not only the person who is sinning, but many around them. There's a ripple effect. I'd like to use three questions to form our outline tonight from these verses. First of all, where does temptation come from? That'll be the source of temptation. Where will it lead, the outcome of temptation? And then what should I do? A warning to avoid temptation. And the way we should respond to this text, that is the goal that, uh, that we should have as we approach these verses, are that we would ask God to help us identify things in our lives that are wrong. That's one of the reasons we're looking at respectable sins on, on Wednesday nights. We want to look at everything in light of how God sees it and really call it what he calls it. So, first of all, ask God to identify those sins in our lives. Secondly, confess them. <laughs> Let's start 2024 with a clean slate. Where our hearts, when we walk out of this building tonight, we could say everything that might be a sin, anything that could come between my, my fellowship uh, between the Lord and I, I want to take care of. I want to make that right tonight. And third, I want to be ready to win the battle the next time a temptation comes along. So first of all, the source of temptation. Where did it come from? Who's to blame? Verses 13 and 14 of James 1, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Here at the beginning of this, uh, verse 13, we have a prohibition. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. No one can blame God for sin. Look at the wording. Uh, 
when the temptation comes, no one should say, remember, this says already, when, when he is tempted, okay, so the temptation is already present, and he can't turn and say, I am tempted of God. The wording here is very specific. He does not say, by God. That would be the agent of temptation. And most people would agree that God is never the agent of temptation to sin. But James goes further. He uses the word of. He's not even, God is not even remotely connected or responsible with anything that would tempt us to do evil. James uses that word of to mean that God cannot be not just the agent, but the source of temptation. It never comes from him. I've often heard people say, well, God gave you a free will, so what do you expect? God knew you would sin, and so he created you with this choice, so you're really not to blame because he created you with that option. Sinful man has always looked for someone else to blame for his wrongdoing. Joseph Edward Duncan III was a, convict, a convicted serial killer and sex offender who was serving multiple sentences for his crimes that were committed in 2005. And following his, his life, it's kind of interesting, he died of brain cancer in March of 2021. But three days before his rampage, he posted these words on his blog, the world will know who I really was and what I really did and what I really thought. Also, maybe they will understand that despite my actions, I'm not a bad person. I just have a disease contracted from society, and it hurts a lot. That could be a, a real extreme example of blaming someone else for sin. But that idea permeates man's thinking, and we hear it often in different ways. I stole because I had to. Uh, I had a greater need for these items than the person who had them, who owned them. Uh, they have more than they need, and therefore I'm the victim. Or I have a condition that excuses my behavior. A Gallup poll found that a majority of Americans are convinced that alcoholism is an illness rather than a sign of moral backsliding. The American Medical Association actually declared alcoholism as a disease in 1987. And it's amazing to hear even Christians talk about that, that the Bible it, uh, says you know, it's, it's a sickness. And no, the Bible says that alcoholism is a sin. It's a moral choice. Some excuse their sinful behavior on the fact that they were abused as a child. The list goes on. Let's go back, if we could, to Genesis chapter 3 and reread that, uh, that familiar section, verses 9 through 13 of Genesis chapter 3, about this first sin that was committed by man. And we'll look at how God interacts with Adam and Eve after the sin he asks in these verses four questions, and they answer with excusing their sin. Uh, the four questions, let's, let's just read through there and, and identify those questions, and we'll listen to the excuses. Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, 
Where art thou? That was the first question. He wasn't asking, I can't find you, Adam. You're somewhere hiding in the garden. I, can't, I don't know where you are. He was asking Adam uh, a remedial question about where he was spiritually. What have you done? Where are you in your relationship? Why would you be hiding? Why aren't you here? And he said, Adam, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and hid, I hid myself. And he said, question number two, who told thee that thou wast naked? He follows it up with the third question, hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? God knew exactly what had happened, but he wanted to ask this question so Adam would know that he knew. In verse 12, and the man said, the woman whom thou gavest me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. And the Lord said unto the woman, and here's the fourth question in this section, what is this that thou hast done? What a great question. And I wonder how many times, if we're listening to God after we have committed some sin, after a temptation, we would hear those words, what is this that thou hast done? If we heard his voice, would it change the way we view sin? What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. Adam said, someone else made me sin, the woman. And, and really, he says, the woman that thou gavest, making God the source, if not the agent, of that temptation. So it's either her fault or really, God, you were the one that gave her to me. Uh, what does the woman say? Eve said, the serpent beguiled me. Satan made me do this. But notice also, who made the serpent? She was blaming God by extension, just like Adam had. The poet Robert Burns wrote, Thou knowest thou hast formed me with passions wild and strong, and listening to their witching voice has often led me wrong. Burns was blaming God for creating him with that propensity, that potential to do evil. The Bible says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Don't say, God made me this way. I can't help it if I do evil. God is so distant from temptation to do wrong that we can't involve him in the same conversation. The reason for the prohibition is to blame God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. There are two things going on here. Number one, it's impossible for God to be responsible for sin because God cannot be tempted to sin. He will never sin. He has never sinned. He is God. He is holy. The temptation of Christ in the wilderness was proof that Christ, even the God-man, could not sin. He would not sin. The gods of Greek and Roman mythology were creations of man's imagination. And they often did things that were wrong, that were immoral. And the true and living God is not a creation of man's thoughts. He is the eternal, sinless God of whom the angelic choir sang in Isaiah 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. So it's impossible for God to be responsible for sin because he cannot be tempted to sin. It's also impossible for him to be responsible because he does not tempt anyone to sin. And that's stated as well in this verse. He may allow trials, as we talked about this morning, to prove our faith, to get us to lean on him. 
but he has never tempted anyone to do evil, and he never will. So how does temptation take place? We'll come to the explanation. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So man must accept the blame. It's a universal law. Every man. Temptation for you is the same as it is with every other individual. It's a universal pattern. Man sins because of his own lust. You might say, well, doesn't Satan play a part in that temptation? Isn't he putting things in front of me? Isn't he responsible for somewhat responsible at least for me falling? Well, he can put the temptation out there, but like bait, it only catches men when they, through their own desires, are led away and enticed to take the bait. He's drawn away. The word drawn away is carried away. And James uses this picturesque word to describe a trap that a hunter would set and use it to lure animals into that trap for capture. He, so this hunter sets the trap. He puts the bait there that he thinks will catch a certain uh, animal. And then he waits. He doesn't do anything else. It's the animal's choice that comes. And he looks at that. And he says, that's exactly what I wanted to eat. That's, I like that, what's in that trap. And he is drawn by his own desires, drawn away. Another word that he uses is enticed. This is a term that was used by fishermen who would bait a hook to entice fish to strike. The successful fisherman has a box full of lures. And depending on what kind of fish he wants to catch... And what has worked before, he'll reach into that box and he says, this is for the big fish, or this is for that brook trout, or this is for a bluegill or a bass. I remember fishing uh, for brook trout in North Carolina. I had not fished before, inexperienced. I mean, I had been fishing, but not really on my own. And there's a guy right up the stream from me that was catching these, these little brook trout right and left. And I said, what are you using for bait? And he said, corn. <laughs> and he had this little niblet corn can opened up, and he was putting this on a hook and just catching them. I said, how does that work? He said, well, that looks like what they used to feed them. These are all uh, fed and planted here by the, uh, the, the Department of Agriculture, and so, or the Fish and Game, and so that's what they're used to eating, and so it looks like that, and that's why it works. You know what? Satan has a tackle box full of lures. He has one for every fish and one for every occasion. And if one doesn't work out of that box, he'll, he'll find another. Satan has been baiting hooks for thousands of years. He has some with your name on that lure. He turns to his demons and he says, you know what? I know that person. I've watched him in his life. You know him. This is one that always works with him. And he has that designed lure for your temptation. But you know what? That's just an enticement. You're the one that chooses to bite the bait. The conclusion, who's to blame? You are. You're responsible for your own sins. Man falls into the temptation because of his own lust, it says. There's one particular sin, one besetting sin that you fall to every time. 
The, the temptation doesn't make you sin. In fact, temptation, the Lord was tempted, but he didn't give in to it. Temptation is not a sin. It's, it's your choice to sin that's wrong. Your lust makes you sin. Therefore, you're to blame. Well, let's go to number, point number two and see the outcome of temptation, verse 15. And if we could see, really, what's ahead. Don't you often think that? The person that, that ended up in prison, if they only knew what led to that, if they could see ahead, if we could see the awful destruction that results of sin, we wouldn't treat it so lightly. Um, where will it lead? We've seen where did it come from? It came from our own lusts. Where will it lead? Verse 15, Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And so here is this, here is this, uh, this pattern that takes place. Lust, sin, death. It always goes that direction. It's easy to sin. Sin is usually found on the path of least resistance. It's easier to go along with the unsaved crowd than to say, no, I can't do that. I've accepted Christ as my Savior. I want to please him. It's easier to remain silent than to witness when we should. Sin is the natural course of the human heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it? It goes on to say, the Lord does. The Lord knows. It's easy to sin. We don't consider the consequence. We look at something that we know is wrong. Absolutely. We know what God says about it in his word. We know the results of it. But we have this appetite for it. And we start to rationalize how it wouldn't really be wrong to have. Because of our fallen nature, we can spend hours playing mental gymnastics to justify something in order that we can do something that we know is wrong. We say things like, oh, it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. I'll just try it so that I can tell others it's wrong. I mean, how can I tell others how bad it is if I haven't experienced it myself? And you'll see those kinds of games being played mentally. Or other people are doing this. Some don't even say that it's wrong. Maybe they're right. Maybe my pastor, maybe my parents are wrong. In fact, my parents are just too overprotective. I was raised in that kind of environment that kept me down. Romans chapter 3 and verse 4 says, God forbid, yea, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. This is a quote from David's prayer of confession in Psalm 51. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this wickedness in thy sight. That, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and clear when thou judgest. God's word hasn't changed. My sin is obvious and it proves that God is just that he is right, that his word is true. So, lust is conceived. Sin is born. Lust is the mother of sin. For every sin you can imagine, it had its origin in lust, that selfish desire in your heart that 
you know is wrong, but drew you away. The Bible is clear. Lust will give birth to sin. You can't break the pattern. You can't expect things to be different for you than for others. Lust gives birth to sin. But that's not the worst part of it, because sin brings the penalty of death. Death is sin's completion. The word finished here, sin when it is finished, indicates something that is full grown. What's the death spoken of here? It's, uh, you'll, you'll read different ideas on this because James is talking to believers. He says in verse 16, do not err my beloved brethren. So he's writing to believers here, it seems. And so if a Christian sins, he still has eternal life. Isn't that right? If you trust Jesus as your personal savior, he took your punishment on the cross of Calvary. All of your sins, past, present, future, are forgiven. He paid it all. Uh, so some say that this death is speaking of the death of a Christian's testimony. He's talking about the, the fact that you're saved and you sin and that's going to bring death. It's the death of your influence or your, your, your testimony to other people. Another explanation of this death mentioned is it could be referring to physical death. Christian has been delivered from spiritual, eternal death, but there's still that possibility of physical death. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.30, one, one of the warnings about taking the communion service unworthily is that many were weak and sickly among you and many sleep. So it could be talking about physical death. A third view is that this person who knowingly, willingly sins, is not really saved. And so we go back up and say they weren't saved in the first place. But here's this pattern. Lust is conceived. Sin is born. And death is sin's completion. Notice lastly now the warning to avoid temptation in verse 16. Where did sin come from? Where will it lead what should I do? Do not err. I, I went to college, and in grammar, they taught me that that word is err, not err. And I said, well, to err is human, and to forgive divine. So please forgive me. I grew up in Michigan where we say err. But do not err, my beloved brethren. Now let me, let me just back up and see the statement. He's, he, what is he saying, do not err? Don't, don't make a mistake, right? That's the way we think of it. But the deception has already started. The, 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 the words that are in the original here are planeo me planeo. Now, planet is something that we get our word from planeo. Me is the, is the, the word not. So he's saying uh, straying away, don't ever stray away. Um, so it's, it's stop doing something that has already started. Stop being deceived. The planeto is to wander off course, to deviate from a pattern. If you were to go out and take a time-lapse photography, a time-lapse picture of Polaris, the North Star, and left the shutter open, you would find that North Star stays in place and all the others seem to be spinning, and they would leave circles around the North Star because of the, the way that the rotation of the Earth works. But 
If you're looking at a planet, it doesn't follow the pattern. It veers away. It goes a different way. And so they call that particular thing a planet. It's, it's closer. It's in the, our solar system. And so this, this planet was planing away. It's wandering off course. It's deviating from a pattern. And so this is what James is saying. Stop deviating from the pattern of faithful Christian living. Don't continue doing that. Again, the deception's already started. The one addressed, my beloved brethren. These were Christians, but they were being deceived. They were gradually veering off course. Now, how can you get back and stay on course? Let me just give five practical steps to having victory over temptation in the coming year. Number one, know your weaknesses. Remember that besetting sin, that Satan knows where that lure is in his box when he comes fishing in your neighborhood. Know your weakness. Prepare to be tempted. If it's a certain time of the day that you have a, a, a propensity to sin, a certain place with a certain group of people, don't go there. Make that time where you normally sin, start doing something else there. Say, that's when I'm going to have my time of prayer. That's when I'm going to spend time in the Word of God. That's when I'm going to be with other believers. Have some specific yeah, specific verses written out that will remind you of God's help. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we've already mentioned that tonight. No temptation taken you, but such as is common. God's faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted above that you're able. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Have that verse ready and, and use it. Say it out loud if you want. But, but know your weakness. Prepare to be tempted. Second, don't make excuses. Be honest with yourself. This is where I fall. This is, this is where I'm weak. Be honest, with you. Be honest with God. He already knows. So don't blame someone else. Don't make excuses. Be honest. Third, confide in a strong Christian friend. Set up an accountability partner. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 and 10 says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. I can't say enough about having a godly Christian friend that will help you battle those temptations. There is a program uh, called Covenant Eyes. And I've had people, in fact, one of our missionaries has just uh, set up this accountability with me. And every three days, I'll get a list of everything that uh, he's visited on every screenshot, every website that he's visited. And that's an accountability. And we do that so that we are helping each other confide in a strong Christian friend. Fourth, have you gotten all these? Know your weakness. Prepare to be tempted. Don't make excuses. Be honest with yourself and God. Confide in a strong Christian friend, an accountability partner. Fourth, submit and resist. Now, we have to know the verse for this to understand what that means. James chapter 4 and verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. 
You bow to him. You say, whatever you say, Lord, that's what I'm going to do. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, and then resist the devil, and he will flee from you. A lot of people say, oh, I'm just going to battle Satan. I'm going to resist him. You can't until you submit to God. Both are important. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. I love that. And he will flee from you. Don't you want to see that? This coming year, when he tries his best to throw something your way, and you say no, and you see him flee. What a victory. Submit and resist. Fifth, and I think this is something that we neglect to do, consider the awfulness of sin. Stop and think about what Jesus did when he hung on the cross for you. He didn't deserve that. He suffered, he bled, he died. Why? For my sin. All of a sudden, that puts sin in a different perspective for me. 1 Peter 2.24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. This passage was written, I believe, to believers. Maybe you're here tonight or watching online and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ for salvation. The Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. You can have your sin problem taken care of because Jesus died for you. And if you'll trust him as your savior, your sins can be forgiven. This year, you'll probably face trials that seem overwhelming. God's grace is sufficient for every trial. This year, you will probably face temptations to sin. God's faithfulness is sufficient for every temptation. It's not a sin to be tempted. It becomes sin when, because of your own desires, you take the bait. Keep a short account of sin. Confess it immediately. Strive to live a life that's pleasing to God. Let's start 2024 with a clean slate. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for your Holy Spirit that applies that word to our hearts. And I pray that as we go from this place tonight, we would go with that victory of sins forgiven. We're not perfect, but we are forgiven. And that desire to prepare to be tempted and to prepare to say no, to have those parameters in place that we'll, we'll set up. And we can't do that in our own strength, Lord. We need your help. And so help us in reliance on you to live a victorious Christian life even this coming year. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.